Okay, what I thought I would do this morning is just to talk to you a little bit about my own experience. We were talking a lot, I mean, this whole, this whole uh, retreat is about how you practice in addition to meditation and the rest of your life and how the two work together. And uh, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about my experience and you might recognize some aspects of that that are similar to yours too. It might be helpful to you. So <coughs> when I first uh, became interested in meditation and in Buddhism, I was a graduate student at the time, and I was really keen on meditation. But I didn't, you know, I was busy, a lot of things took my time, so I, I wasn't meditating every day. But uh, I was in a position that I could take time off and do retreats, weekend retreats, three-week retreats, things like that. And. Uh, I really had this feeling that I'd go on a retreat and I'd have, I'd make so much progress. I'd have such a good experience with it. And then the retreat would be over. And within two or three days, it's, it's like, it was like the plug was pulled and all this good stuff just ran out the hole in the bottom. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't keep that from happening. And so, one effect that did have is that over time I came to appreciate the importance of practicing on a daily basis, regularly. Because typically what would happen, I might go away for a retreat, and then I would come back, and it would be all the stuff that I had to do that had. So, I would have been retreating, I would have been meditating for, you know, eight, ten, depending on the retreat and who was leading it, hours a day. And then I would come back and for the next week, I didn't meditate at all. And, you know, uh, because I had all this stuff to do to catch up on things, and it disappeared very quickly. Um, and that helped to make me appreciate the value and importance of regular meditation. But, you know, I still had the experience that I'd have a good meditation and then I'd go into my regular daily life, and it's like the two were in total opposition to each other. Life was busy undoing everything that I had succeeded in accomplishing during meditation, even when you meditate every day. And uh, it actually took me a long time to appreciate the real nature of the problem, but I had very good teachers and and the, the essence of it is that um, the person that you are, you know, as the Buddha said, we are the heirs of our karma, the inheritors of, uh, well, inheritors is not a good, we're the, we are the heirs, you are the heirs of your parents, right? 
what your parents are has formed you. We are the heirs of our karma. Uh, we are what we have made ourselves to be through our past actions and through our thoughts and behaviors. And meditating doesn't change that. Sitting in meditation for an hour doesn't change the accumulated conditioning that makes you who and what you are. And who and what you are is what gets up from the cushion and then goes out and interacts with the world. And it's going to do the same things, make the same mistakes, and disturb its own mind in the same way it always has, unless you do something to change that. And so, uh, eventually I began to understand that. I, uh, I was serious about meditation, and I actually made very good progress. But I had heard about, read about, knew other people who were having these experiences of wonderful pleasure, bodily pleasure, mental pleasure, joy, rapture, things like that. That absolutely wasn't happening with me. And, um, but then, I looked at the instruction that I had been given, and we were told that there are five hindrances which meditation can suppress, but which also stand in opposition to the factors that we develop in meditation. Very interestingly, the The hindrance of ill will and the hindrance of uh, agitation due to worry and remorse, these are two of these five hindrances. And the hindrance of ill will is said to stand in direct opposition to uh, the experience of pleasure, the bodily pleasure and the happiness that come from meditation. Now if you think about this, that makes pretty good sense. Ill will, anger, uh, being judgmental, critical, these kinds of negative mental attitudes. They're all, in one way or another, a reflection of the opposite of pleasure, of displeasure, of hurt. I mean, we become angry because we've been hurt. It's a reaction to being hurt, right? And. Uh, all of these neg negative mental states exist in our minds. At any point in time when they exist in our minds, it's because we're holding on to some past hurt. Even if there's no hurt in the present, they exist because we're holding on to some past hurt. Do you understand that? And when you're holding on to some old hurt, you don't really feel pleasure. Now, I'll grant you there is a pseudo-pleasure that we can sometimes experience in, in the heat of anger because it makes us feel strong and powerful and capable. But that's not real pleasure. 
it's not the kind of pleasure that you would expect to find in meditation or anything else like that. Negative mental states of the kind that constitute this hindrance obviously stand in the way of experiencing pleasure. Now, in meditation, if you meditation, meditate long enough and hard enough, the, uh, the meditation factors that develop can suppress the hindrances, but they don't eliminate them. And uh, as long as they exist, there's always this opposition. So, one of the things is, I, why couldn't I experience all of this blissful bodily pleasure and mental happiness that was one of the things that was promised by meditation and that other people seem to explore, uh, experience, and I, and I wasn't. But one thing I knew about myself is I, I did, I had anger that I had carried since I was a child. And as an adult, I had largely suppressed it, but it was still there. And when I realized what this teaching was telling me is that as long as I was holding this anger inside of myself, no matter how much I wanted my meditation to produce these results, it couldn't. It was standing in the way. And so that was really the beginning of me taking seriously the need to make changes in myself, and the place to make the changes was in my daily life. So I had, I had, what I had to do was to confront this anger in myself and to go through a process of forgiveness of, uh, of the cause of the hurt that had created the anger so I could let go of it. So I had to learn, I had to learn some compassion and apply it to somebody who I'd harbored a lot of anger towards for a long time. Compassion, understanding, and I had to bring myself to a place of forgiveness. And I had help with this. Uh, I had some very good friends who were still uh, in dealing with these kinds of psychological problems. And, and they were able, once I recognized the problem, then I could seek the kind of assistance. But, and so I was able to start making some progress once again. But that made me realize how important the rest of my life was to my practice. It's my, and this happens, I think, with a lot of people, and maybe you'll recognize uh, it in yourself, uh, or maybe it's something you've already recognized and overcome. But we tend to put our Dharma practice on our meditation in one compartment of our life, and then we go back to being the same old person we always were in the rest of our life. And you can do that up to a point. You know, and the meditation will help the rest of your life. The improved concentration, the decreased stress, the uh, uh, heightened awareness that you have and things like that, they have a payoff in your ordinary life. But if you don't do anything else, you're going to come to a certain point and you'll experience what I did. Uh, you. You practice and it seems to be going well, 
And then something happens in your life that just blows everything apart. And so you go back and you practice and practice and you get back to where you are again. But sooner or later something happens in life that blows it all apart. And you look at it and you say, my life is my problem. You know, you think, maybe I should, maybe I should take vows and put on robes and withdraw from life because life is such a dirty old mess. But, you know, it's not the things that happen at all. It's uh, outside of yourself. It's what happens in here and how you react to them. The entire problem turns out to be in here. The very same mind that is uh, the seeking, awakening, practicing the Dharma, holding these high ideals, that's the very same mind that is still conditioned with all of the bad habits of thinking and speaking and behavior which are completely uh, counter, run completely counter to what we're trying to do in our practice. And so you realize that you have to work on both of them at the same time. That if you don't, it's true, life stands in contradiction to meditation and dharma practice. The, The one and the other are not compatible. Life keeps undoing all the work that you've done. But if you recognize that they're really, it's the same mind that's doing both of these, and the same kind of work needs to be done all of the time in every situation, then they begin to work together and they start to create a harmony, a, a reciprocal harmony where what you do in your daily life doesn't detract from the skills that you develop during meditation, but it reinforces them and makes them stronger and more effective. It opens your mind up. Uh, It allows meditative progress to take place. So, this was was a very important thing for, for me to learn. And it opened up the way for me to go from being a skilled meditator, somebody who worked very hard and reached a certain level in my practice, to becoming an adept meditator. Who uh, Now, meditation was something that really happened all of my life. But when I would sit down and close my eyes and be quiet, then I could do a much more powerful form of meditation. But when the bell rang and I got up, I didn't stop meditating. I continued the practice, continuing the practice of of mindful awareness. And as I said yesterday, meditation is all about learning about your mind. And if you think about it, everything, everything about your life is really about your mind. And uh, so you need to work on your mind, you need to learn about your mind, and work about, on your mind all of the time, all of every day. So it took me a while to learn that. But once I did, and once I started applying that, it made a huge difference.
interesting idea. You are the product of all of your past conditioning. And everything you do in every moment of every day is creating who you are in the future. And that is, that is a very profound reality. It's not something to be thought of in some simplistic or glib fashion of, oh yeah, I know that. But I mean, it has a very profound truth to it. Um, you are a process and you are constantly changing. You're not the same person you were yesterday. You will not be the same person tomorrow. Most of us go through our life not recognizing that we are the creators of who and what we are. We are the owners of our karma. Because what we do, everything we do, we are, we are making karma. So we are the authors of it, the creators of it, the owners of it. And then the person who wakes up tomorrow morning and gets out of bed is the heir to the karma that has been made. That person wakes up and they are the product. They are the result of that. What you are in this moment, you can't, you have to accept. There's no point in judging yourself or uh, blaming yourself or being dissatisfied with who you are in this moment. Because that's already past and done. You've already created who you are now. But in this very same moment, you're taking what the, the, the person that has been created is taking the circumstances that arise and is creating the future person that they're going to be, which gives you an, an enormous amount of power. You cannot change the present because it is what it is. And there's no point in struggling with that and resisting that and denying that. Because if you do, if you struggle and deny and resist that, you are creating a person who is the product of struggle and denial and resistance in the next moment, in the next hour, in the next day. Instead, if you can recognize what are the skillful and what are the unskillful ways to respond to what arises in every moment. What makes something skillful? It is skillful because you are creating the kind of karma that will result in you being in a future moment the kind of person that you would prefer to be. And unskillful is when you do the things that you are going to create yourself to be the kind of person who continues to be unhappy and suffering in some way. And so this is the process that we're engaged in continuously. So meditation is an extremely important part of the practice and of your life. But if you think about it, you spend far more time out of every day not meditating. And in every moment of the rest of the day, you are creating the karma that's going to determine the person that you are 
tomorrow. <coughs> so we continuously create ourselves. So if you make the mistake, which I originally did, of ignoring that, then you see, on the one hand, you're spending a small amount of your day doing something that's very skillful, and then a large amount of your day going ahead and doing the same old unskillful things you've always done before. And then you stand back and you feel frustrated. Like, How come, you know, I, I do all of this and then it all comes apart again on me? Or how come I try so hard and I'm doing really well and, and then the retreat's over with and it all disintegrates and unravels and goes. But that's the reason. That's the reason. The tools that the Buddha gave us to work with are very straightforward. The precepts. The precepts are, they're they're tools. They're not rules. They're not, you know, commandments that you must do things this way and you can't do that. They're tools. And it's up to you to use those tools. And if you've learned to use any kind of tool in your life, you know that the longer you use it, the more skilled at using it you become. And you learn to be able to do things with it that originally you could not do. And this is the way the precepts are. If you look at them, you know, and people People do approach them as rules. And when they see them as rules, then they want to go to somebody and say, well, if this happens, what should I do? You know, how do I interpret this rule? You know, give me a bigger set of rules. So you say, you know, that uh, I undertake the precept not to uh, harm or destroy living beings. Now, what do I do when there's ants in my kitchen? You know, what do I do when there's a mosquito uh, stinging me? You know. I understand I shouldn't go around shooting other people, but what about all these other situations? The way in which this is a tool is it's it's not it's something that you work with. It's not you have to rigidly follow it, and if you don't, you're some sort of terrible being, and you know you can never become awakened, and you'll be reborn in some hell because of it. Because, quite frankly, that's all a bunch of nonsense. It's a tool for you to use to keep in mind, to practice mindfully, and to decide. You may swat an awful lot of mosquitoes, and if you, uh, but you can keep in mind at the time that you're doing it. That, well, I say I took a precept not to swat mosquitoes. So, what am I actually doing? Why am I actually doing this? That's how it works as a tool. And over time how you interpret that precept may change. Some people, working with the precept as a tool, decide to be vegetarians, because after all, if you eat meat, then some animal had to be destroyed to make that meat available. And others, very high lamas and teachers and uh, people, and uh, very spiritual people, on the other hand, have no hesitation about eating meat if it's offered to them. 
And the Buddha was one of these. The Buddha ate whatever was given to him. He only said, don't kill an animal on my behalf. And of course, he wouldn't do that himself. So the precepts, my, my point here is that they aren't rigid rules that you must follow when some terrible thing is going to happen to you if you don't. Instead, they are tools to work with. And if you just follow them blindly, then you're not really using them as a tool. It's only if you question, you know, uh, to refrain from false speech. And you say, well, what about, what about white lies? Or uh, one of them that came, what about uh, saying things that make other people happy, right? Because we're supposed to be loving, generous, kind, things like that. So, you know, uh, is it, it, uh, are you keeping the precept? Or if you uh, tell somebody something that's not true, but it makes them feel better? Hmm, what is the answer? The thing is, some people will go to a teacher and they'll say, what should I do? What's the answer? But that's not the idea. Uh, If it's a good teacher, the teacher won't give you the answer, but the teacher might help you think about the answer so that you find your own answer. Because the point is that you need to work with it to discover its meaning and to keep applying it. Generally what you find is that the longer somebody works with the precepts as a tool, then the more naturally and easily they know what to do and, and how, you know, how to apply that precept. It's like somebody that's worked with a tool for a long time is really skilled. And because they're really skilled, then whatever task comes their way, they, they know exactly how to use that tool or that set of tools to produce the desired result. So that's the way we work with the precepts. That's the way we work with all of these different things. Um, So the precepts are one really valuable tool to guide us, making our decisions in the different situations that we find ourselves in. The Buddha also said that, he said, when I was uh, not yet enlightened, just a bodhisattva, I realized that uh, I had two kinds of thoughts. I had those thoughts which were unwholesome. They involved, uh, they involved greed, they involved ill will, they involved cruelty. And then I had other thoughts that were the opposite kind. They were wholesome thoughts. They involved uh, generosity, compassion, loving kindness. Uh, that uh, they were completely the opposite. And he said to himself, uh, whenever I have these thoughts of an unwholesome sort, I can see that they're harmful to me and that they're harmful to others. And that holding these thoughts don't move me towards awakening, do not move me towards nirvana. But when I have wholesome thoughts, it's just the opposite. They benefit me. They benefit others. And they do bring me closer to awakening, to nirvana. And so he said to himself, why don't I try to pay attention? And whenever I find that an unwholesome thought has arisen, let me replace it 
with a wholesome thought. And he described that as one of the most important practices he did. And it's actually exactly the same thing I, I talked to you about. I discovered that here I was carrying this anger. And you know the way it is, I had anger about something that happened many years ago as a as an adult, as a child. And as an adult, I pushed that all aside. The anger was still inside. So does that mean the anger was gone? Well, no, it kept coming up all the time in all kinds of ways. When you carry anger inside of yourself, uh, you're judgmental, you're critical. Uh, you easily become angry at other people. You're impatient. And so what I did literally was to replace the anger that I had carried with compassion and understanding. And when I did that, it made it much easier whenever anger would, or whenever ill will and anger would arrive in other situations to do the same thing. I discovered a very interesting thing about this, too. Um, there was a root cause, which is the anger that came from my childhood that I carried for a long time. And even when I had dealt with that, let go of that, completely beyond that, I found that it had left a residue. My mind was still filled with the habits and the conditioning that came from that being a part of me for so long. So even, even when you've removed the, the root of something like that, you've still got all of the leaves and branches, so to speak. So there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of learning to recognize it. Oh, here I am, still behaving out of this old pattern. And so it was a process of doing the same thing over and over again many times, to let go of the anger and try to replace it with a much more wholesome thought. With, uh, and this is the same thing Leticia was talking yesterday about being angry. She recognized in a very important thing that anger makes you suffer. You know, It's a very interesting thing. Somebody hurts you and you become angry at them. That's like setting yourself on fire. It doesn't hurt the other person. <laughs> the person that you're angry at doesn't suffer the consequences of the anger. You suffer the consequences of the anger. So really sensible, isn't it? You wonder why we are that way. Somebody comes and we hurt us. And so in response, we hurt ourselves even more. But that's what happens. That's what we do. But um, when we talked yesterday about Letitia's situation, uh, some of you weren't here yesterday. Somebody stole something from her. And she found that she became extremely angry, angry, and the anger made her sick. And she said, what can I do when somebody that you trust does something like this to you? And, and uh, you feel so angry. And uh, actually, I didn't have to provide the answer. There are other people here that had practiced this enough to understand it. What you do it, for your own sake is you, you find a way to replace anger with compassion and understanding, patience. And this then removes the pain from you. It removes the suffering from you. It doesn't keep you from doing what's appropriate. 
having compassion for somebody who has harmed you doesn't mean that now because you're compassionate you go ahead and let them go on hurting other people. But what you've done is you no longer need to suffer. Even more importantly, you've made an important step towards not inflicting that kind of anger on yourself in the future. Because anger comes up like that. We don't say, hmm, I think I'm going to become angry about this. It doesn't happen like that. We're filled with anger and the pain that uh, that is our holding on to the hurt. Uh, that pain is there instantly when the anger is there. So we learn to let go of it. But every time we learn to let go of it, we're creating that new kind of karma. We're changing the way we are, and we will eventually become the person who responds immediately with compassion rather than with anger. And you made really good progress there. Uh, If you think about all the different situations in your daily life that may seem to make sustaining the focused mindfulness and uh, clarity and peacefulness that you've attained in your meditation makes it really hard for you to sustain them. There's situations where you are reacting in an unskillful way. And yes, it's true. When you react in an unskillful way, whether it's fear, whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, whatever, you know, all of the different unskillful ways that we can react to things. When we react in an unskillful way, yes, we're destroying the peace and the equanimity and the tranquility and the joy and, and the mindfulness that we created. Interesting thing about anger, it wipes out mindfulness right away. Fear wipes out mindfulness. Greed wipes out mindfulness. You know, it erases it all. It's like that. So, every time you react in an unskillful way, you, you undo the fruits of your meditation practice and you condition your mind to react in the same way next time something like that happens. And it just, it, it keeps reinforcing the same pattern. So, the reason that we need to practice mindfulness is to try to get on top of this. And as, uh, as, as in the Buddha's advice to Rahula, even if it's after the fact, if you apply the mindfulness to it, it's going to leave a seed, it's going to leave a karmic seed. If you reviewed your unskillful actions, mental acts, verbal acts, physical acts, if you review them from a place of mindfulness, from a place of the wisdom that you've acquired through understanding the Dharma, that will leave a seed. And every time you do that, that it reinforces and nourishes that, that will grow to where you come to the point where you have the mindfulness while you're performing the action. And eventually you'll have the mindfulness before you perform the mental or verbal or physical act. And then you keep on you keep on nourishing this until the, com- the point comes that that negative, unskillful reaction doesn't even arise anymore. And then you've come to a wonderful place. So, you come to, if, if, if anger is what has been your problem, you will come to a place 
where you very, very rarely, if ever, experience anger. And I promise you that that is true. And if you do find yourself experiencing anger, you catch it really quickly and you automatically know what to do. It just, you know, it's like you find yourself sticking your hand in hot water, you automatically know, pull it out, right? And, and it's just, it's like that. And it's the same way with all of these different unskillful things. These are the very things that stand in the way of our awakening, of understanding the ultimate truth. Because these are the things that constantly cloud our perceptions. These unwholesome emotions, these uh, unwholesome thoughts, these unwholesome actions, because they're all arising out of the very poison that stands in the way of your liberation. Which is? What stands in the way of your liberation? Mm, no your belief in yourself? Belief in a separate self? Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, it's the belief in your separate self and the belief that things are the way they appear to you. That not recognizing that your mind is projecting your reality. Everybody in this room lives in a different reality. And everybody in this room assumes that they are a separate self. And that is the root of all of your problems. And that root gives rise to <coughs> craving, desire, and aversion. And from the desire and aversion comes all these unskillful acts. And so, uh, we, it is a methodical process of undoing, undoing all of this negative conditioning and this unwholesome karma to arrive at a place of being somebody who can awaken. for anyone? It raises questions. Yes, that's what I want. <laughs> Go ahead, good, good. Uh, what are the questions it raises for you? Well, you know, it seems to me that there's a place for what I would call righteous indignation, where you see something going on that is wrong, and unless you feel upset and angry about it, you don't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it sort of sounds a little bit uh, as though uh, you've got somebody hurting another person, let's say beating a child, yeah. um, and you can prevent it by yeah. hitting the perpetrator over the head with a two-by-four. Yeah. So should I do that and forgive them at the same time? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I've, I've been in situations like yeah. this, not that sort of physical type thing, right. but the same principle where I was aware of people who were doing things that were harmful. This is an extremely common situation. In one, you know, you know it takes many different forms, but the scenario in which somebody else is doing something that is harmful, and you're in a position that you can do something about it, and you come to the question of what should I do and what do I do? So this is a wonderful question for us to look at. And, and what do you think? Well, the, the way that you sort of describe it sounded very sort of passive, 
to me. I can certainly see merits in what you've described in mm -hmm. terms of one's own self-development. But I see too many people who are passive about mm -hmm. this kind of incident. That's what we need to examine. So there was a, what you said is that if you don't feel this righteous indignation, you won't do anything about it. And well, that's, that, that's what happens. Is, yes, that's what's happening. So that's what we need to examine. It's true. We do see that that people are sometimes what motivates people to take positive action are that they are filled with uh, anger at what they see. And this is one of the things that makes us feel like, well, anger must be a good thing. And I'll grant you this much. It serves a purpose. I mean, we, we, we did not... Evolution didn't make us to be a kind of person, a kind of being, a kind of entity who has within us this spontaneous tendency to generate anger. Evolution didn't do that by accident. It must serve a purpose that it wouldn't exist. And we see throughout the animal kingdom a reaction of, of anger. Uh, some animal goes into another animal's territory and that animal reacts spontaneously with anger and attacks and drives the other one out of its territory. That's obvious the purpose that that serves. The animal whose instinct to anger uh, is protecting the resources that it depends on to live and that its uh, offspring depend on to live. And it's a rather crude thing. And it doesn't require a lot of intelligence. And we are different from animal and we have intelligence and we have other faculties. So let's put the question in a different way. It seems that often the only reason that people take positive action is because they have uh, unwholesome emotions arising. And it likewise seems that it often happens that uh, if in some way or another they suppress or don't experience those unwholesome emotions, that they don't act. And what we're contrasting that with is we're saying, a person who has developed a high level of mindful awareness and a high ethical and moral standard, does it mean that uh, by overcoming uh, by overcoming the unwholesome emotions, does it render them incapable or unlikely to take appropriate action? Are our actions dependent upon these unwholesome emotions? And you're shaking your head, you say no. You can always act appropriately in a situation. It doesn't preclude you from, from um, stepping in where you can be affected. Yeah, but you can't stop having feelings about it. I mean, oh, the no, adrenaline surges and your heart beats faster, and you're going to get that guy. Yes. You know, I. I, I, um, I mean, if, if you're totally dispassionate about beating him off this unfortunate child. That's kind of a psychopathic personality. That you can do horrible things to somebody with, mm -hmm. without feeling any anger or distress. It's just what you do. 
Well, or you can do, if, if you saw somebody harming a child, there's two emotions that you're going to experience. One is anger, and the other is compassion. Because you have compassion for the child, and you have anger for the person that is harming them. And it seems to me that either one of them, if it is strong enough, uh, can produce motivation. I mean, the, the word emotion means that which moves us. And emotions move us. They move us to act. And compassion could move you to act, as well as anger. So, I'd suggest that you don't really need to have anger. I'd say that anger is what is most likely to come up. And that for anger to come up and for you to accept the anger, the ang anger always justifies itself. So it will come with a story that justifies whatever you do, justifies you being angry, justifies you taking the action that you do. Uh, and it will probably initially at least dominate the, the compassion. But if you succeed in conditioning yourself not to respond out of anger, it doesn't mean that you won't respond. Because, at least in the kind of scenario that I described, what you've been training yourself to do is to respond with compassion rather than anger. And so you, you have a focus of compassion already. And as a matter of fact, you can be compassionate both for the abuser and the abused. And you can act out of that compassion. It's enough of a motivator to act you, to cause you to act. And if you think about it, in real life, when people react out of anger, how often do they, they, they act, but how often do they act in the wisest way? How often do people reacting out of anger end up uh, suffering greatly as a consequence of what they do? Quite often, right? And if nothing else, um, very often when we act out of anger, out of hatred, it only causes the person that we've acted towards to react to us again with anger and hatred. And so it perpetuates itself. So, although in a very primitive kind of organism um, and a very unenlightened kind of human being, I grant you, anger serves a purpose in a simplistic and not necessarily uh, totally useful way, but it does serve a purpose. But we have, as human beings, we're unique. As human beings, we can, you know, many animals, all of their behavior is determined entirely by instinct. You know, certain kinds of fish, uh, uh, there's a fish that uh, mates with the female when the female's belly turns red. It means that the eggs are ready and, and so and the instinct is so strong in that fish that you can take a red piece of plastic and put it in the water and the, the male fish will come and mate with it. Emotions are 
somewhere, you know, a, a little bit more sophisticated than instinct, because instincts are just blind, mechanical, acting in a particular way in response to a stimulus. Emotions trigger us to act in a particular kind of way, but they allow the other part of our mind to uh, choose the specific course of action, but they still, uh, they're, they're somewhere between acting rationally and acting out of total instinct. They direct us to go in a particular in a particular direction, uh, but uh, they, they don't define the exact actions that we take. But human beings, we, we're, not, we're not reliant on instinct alone. We are more reliant on emotion than we need to be. And we can certainly, there is nothing, what I'm suggesting to you is absolutely nothing that a negative emotion allows you to do, that there isn't a positive and wholesome emotion that can't serve the same purpose, plus the fact that you have a rational thinking mind. So I'm not denying that for the average, uneducated, unenlightened, unwise person, that uh, they're the raw emotions that arise will tend to cause them to act in ways that are more or less serviceable, but they, they often cause more harm than good. Often the anger is manifested inappropriately. Uh, so now the other question, the, the other side of this is we see that when people, that many people don't take action appropriately. This is the other important part of what you raised, um, and this is this is a large problem in in the world. Uh, there are, the world is populated with aggressive people who will exploit other people in various ways to their own advantage. Uh, people who are themselves the victim of uncontrolled anger or alcohol abuse or things like this which cause them to, to affect people in negative ways. And whenever you're in a situation that involves those kinds of people, then you're in exactly this dilemma. What, what do I do? What action do I take? And often there's consequences. If there is a person harming a child and you anger arises and you say, I'm going to do something about that, there's a good chance that the person harming the child is going to turn away from the child and attack you. And you might not be as big and strong as they are. And so trying to do something might... Bigger and stronger than the child. <laughs> yes, bigger and stronger, yes. So, uh, what, what do you do? What do you do in that sense? And a, a lot of times people will be out of their fear. And fear can take many forms. Sometimes you just don't want to get involved. You don't approve, but hey, it's not my problem. I've got an appointment, you know. So people do that. They ignore these kinds of things. Um, and you might say, well, if their anger was stronger, then maybe they would forget their appointment and, and do something. But really, it's what we're talking about is another unwholesome. They, they have the fear 
of being hurt or the fear of the consequences. Um, I, I have this important appointment with this person who might give me a new job and I'll make a lot of money, but if I stop and help this other person who's got a flat tire and obviously a real big problem, then I might not get that big job. So what is that? It's, you know, you, you, there's a future scenario that, that uh, uh, there's something that you could have and then there's this future scenario where there's the loss of that possible something. And so you decline to take action to help a person because of life is full of all of these kinds of things. And our normal emotions don't serve us very well because we may be angry at somebody harming a child, but we're afraid they're going to turn around and harm us, so we back away and leave it happen. Or we may a feeling of compassion for somebody who is in a difficult situation may arise, but our attachment to the personal gain that we stand to realize uh, if we don't stop and help them keeps us from stopping and helping. So uh, we can't rely on emotions. emotions. We've got to move beyond that. Uh, if we want to be a higher kind of being, if we want to realize our potential, then we've got to we've got to move beyond. Mm-hmm. But you'd be relying on the emotion of compassion. Well, we don't have to we don't have to rely entirely on it. But if we're going well, we are emotional creatures. So we're better off acting rationally out of a motivation of compassion than we are trying to act rationally in the face of anger or fear. The the emotions and mental states that we're talking about as being wholesome and skillful, you'll find are very compatible with being a rational person. And the ones that we're describing as unwholesome and unskillful tend to be much less compatible with being a rational person. We should take a break. We can come back to this afterwards. I don't know if this, if you feel like Well, this. yes, actually, it, it, it's been uh, quite helpful. I think I'll probably have to explore it in my own mind for, for a little while. But, but really what you're trying to accomplish in this kind of situation, I guess, is to save the child yes. or to deal with the wrong that's, that's being done. So that should be your motivation. That's rather right. than beating the heck out of Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and this our objective is not to become uh, passive Pollyannas living in our own little wonderful world. As a matter of fact, if you are if you are going to succeed in this path, you are going to be inevitably you are going to be socially active. Remember, one of the things we said that the Buddha said is that you not only take refuge in the Buddha and and you keep the precepts, but you manifest concern for the welfare of those around you. And and this is is a very fundamental part of it. Passivity and non-activity are not. They're counterproductive.